ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Well, this year will mark 55 years since this. Houston, uh, Base here. The Eagle has landed. Seems so long ago now, doesn't it? And what an achievement. So extraordinary. Well, you know what? It's all coming back. After years of being in abeyance, the moon is big business again. The 2024 is set to become the year of the moon as the world space agencies focus on the Earth, Earth satellite. There are more than 10 missions, I know, expected to embark on the journey, all with the goal of achieving successful landings on the moon's surface. In January, Japan became only the fifth nation to, to land softly on the moon. They did land upside down, I, I know, but they've got it working uh, again. Meanwhile, a U.S. spacecraft has faced a different fate despite a successful launch. Five, four, three, we have ignition and liftoff of the first United Launch Alliance Vulcan rocket. Yes, the, um, there was a fuel fault and it led to, it led to a mission abort. But the Peregrine craft, if successful, would have uh, marked the first American moon landing in half a century and the first ever private venture to achieve this endeavour. NASA's plan to return to the moon, initially scheduled for later this year, has encountered some setbacks and the agency has announced ambitious plans to send humans to the lunar surface for the first time since 1972. Well, the year promises more launches despite the Peregrine uh, Vulcan rocket setback. There'll be the Martian Moons Exploration Mission in September, the Europa Clipper and Hera in October, and Viper to the Moon in November. And alongside these lunar adventures, of course, there are plenty of other things to watch in the skies. Well, joining us tonight to talk about it all, Dr Sarah Webb's an astrophysicist at Swinburne's University of Technology. Sarah, good evening to you. Good evening to you. And Dr Brad Tucker, of course, will join us as well, astrophysicist and cosmologist at the ANU, well known to nightlife listeners and others. Uh, Brad, good evening to you. Welcome back. Uh How's it going? Not too bad. And drum roll, please. Welcome to Colonel Chris Hadfield. Now, Colonel Chris Hadfield is a retired astronaut. He's the first Canadian commander of the International Space Station. He's the author of The Apollo Murders and The Defector. And he's also, of course, the author of this. This is ground control to Major Tom. You've really made the grave. He might have been more famous for that than even getting into space. Chris Hadfield, good evening to you. And thanks very much for joining us here on Nightlife. Good evening, Philip. Nice to hear your voice. Yeah, no, it's great to have you with us as well. Chris, what sparked all this interest in the moon all of a sudden? Well, we've been interested in the moon uh, since the history of humanity. I mean, the the lunar, our calendar is based on the moon. It's been a god in most... uh, most religions, it's uh, and it's there in every night sky. But only very recently have we built machines mm. that can take us there. You know, the very first with uh, robots in the 60s and then Neil and Buzz walking on the surface in 69. Um, but we're sort of transitioning now from that 
uh, exploration phase where you can just barely get there if you spend a lot of money and take huge risk. We're now transitioning where the transportation systems are getting good enough that we can get there uh, far cheaper, well, really far safer, which makes it far cheaper, um, so that way more robots are going and very soon uh, people are going. And not just, you know, to plant a flag and show that it's possible, mm -hmm. but actually go and stay. So it, it's sort of like Antarctica or any other place, but, uh, but that's where we are in history. Mm. What's changed? Well, this is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, Chris. What, what, what's changed in terms of technology, is the moon easier to get to now? The Saturn V rocket's not with us anymore. Uh, what, what, what is it easier to get to the moon these days? Well, it, it, I mean, it's not easy to get to Sydney, but it's <laughs> it's uh, technologically feasible uh, for a Canadian, and um, we've proven airplane technology. So even though I'm in Toronto right now, mm. I could be in Sydney tomorrow if I wanted, with almost no risk. Um, so what's really changed in spaceflight is a is radical uh, improvement in rocket technology over the last 60 years. Okay. And when you improve the technology, it becomes safer and simpler. And then the cost comes down. And the big rocket that they're testing in South Texas right now in America um, should w w it's already 25 times cheaper to fly in space than it was when I first flew on the shuttle. Mm -hmm. 25 times. So what used to be you know, a thousand is now forty, and with the big rocket that they're testing down in South you're, you're Texas, talking now, about uh, the about the about SpaceX's big rocket, are you? No, I'm talking right now about their smaller rocket okay. that's made it twenty times cheaper. But the big rocket, which is called Starship, should even be ten times cheaper than that, so two hundred and fifty times cheaper. So what used to cost a thousand dollars will cost four dollars, and that's what really opens up space, Earth orbit. And then the moon, which is, you know, 400,000 kilometers away. So it's the advance. It's like going from, I don't know, uh, sail to steam or, or from uh, from propellers to jets. When you have a radical improvement in transportation, it opens up all new possibilities. And that's where we are historically. Mm. Is it safer now than it was? Way, way safer. I mean, there, there are people flying in space right now who have that basically the same briefing that you get to fly on Qantas. You know, Bill Shatner, William Shatner, Captain Kirk from Star Trek, mm. he went for a ride up to space. He's 90 years old. And and uh, Jared Isaacman and a crew of three have flown to space privately on a, star, a, a SpaceX vehicle. Um, what, none of them are professional astronauts. Sure, he's a pilot, but the training, because the vehicle is so much simpler and safer, you don't need nearly as much training. You don't have to be uh, make it your entire life's work to be an astronaut. And that's only getting simpler. And it's like airplanes, you know, between 1903 and 1953. Airplanes mm. got way simpler and safer. And, and so um, so that's also um, driving the change. Yeah. I mean, the, the basic means of getting there, rocket propulsion, is still the same, isn't it? We've got the rockets are better but it's still the same idea, isn't it? Well, well yeah, but uh, that's like saying uh, traveling from uh, Toronto to Australia is still the same as it was 10,000 years ago. You, you get in some sort of vehicle and you travel mm. and then you get there. But, but yeah, sure, mm. or, you know, our airplane. But think of the huge improvement in airplane technology over the last 60 years. Uh, 
where it's so fast and big and easy and comfortable now and it sure didn't used to be um just less than a lifetime ago and so that's happening in spaceflight. Yeah, sure. It's always going to be rockets unless we invent something magic or sure. at least something we understand. <laughs> yeah, I suppose that was but, my, I suppose that was my question. Really, that there isn't, there isn't, there's not, doesn't seem to be an, a technology on the horizon. Brad Tucker's with us as well, astronaut physicist from the ANU, and Dr. Sarah Webb as well. Brad, do we know everything? How much about the moon do we know in terms of of its surface mapping? You know, and I guess I think one of the interesting things is you know, yes. You know, kind of careless. What Chris was saying, you know, we've been able to study the surface of the the moon for for centuries, even with the human eye. But as instruments get sent more sensitive, and we can look in different colors of light, we can look in different techniques. We start learning different compositions, densities. You know, we've seen now that there's a lot of hydroxyl compounds, so things that contain oxygen and hydrogen contained in the soil and rocks on the moon. You know, we had hints of that with the Apollo missions and the samples they brought back, but later missions from India, Shonri and one mission and and then a Sophia, this, this telescope that flew in an airplane, have shown, yeah, there's actually a ton of this stuff locked in the water and the soil. Mm. So as we get our technology improves and our ability to measure the moon up close robotically, as we were just hearing, or or from Earth still, we learn a lot more, and we still find surprises now and then. And I think that's the the great thing about it. And, and also to me, you know, when we reflect back 55 years ago, one of the legacies, I think still the biggest legacy, no offense, Chris, is not the people to the mood. I think it's the science that we learned because of that exploration on the moon. Mm. And now that, as we just heard, how cheap it's going to get and is getting, we're going to have that next leap forward in understanding the Earth, Moon, Sun system, which goes back to even our, our origin on this planet. Mm. Who's getting? Who's the best at it at the moment, Chris? I mean, SpaceX. It, it, it seems extraordinary to me that in the in the space of one generation, you've got a private company that can not only fly rockets potentially to the moon, but land them again, reuse them, <laughs> and then launch launch them again. Is the United States still a leader in this, or are, are the Europeans catching up? Uh, and where are the Russians and the Chinese? Well, uh, I think it's important to point out that no one has ever left Earth orbit except the Americans. Hmm. No one has, you know, there there are people living on. You the mean space no station. human? No human has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one, no yeah. human, no yeah. no yeah. person. I wasn't yeah. talking about machines. Um, and so no one has left Earth orbit except Americans. So so that's kind of a, a pretty <laughs> substantial line in the sand. Um, you know, we've sent probes that have even left our solar system beyond Pluto and, and, and way out there with the Voyager probes. So robots have gone all over the place. But um, but as far as trying to take people somewhere, uh, the Americans are still the world leaders. However, uh, they are rapidly being uh, caught up to by the Chinese space program. And the head of the Chinese uh, human space program has said they will have Chinese astronauts walking on the moon by 2030. No problem. 2030 is like five and a half years from now, you yeah. know, and five and a half years ago was whatever, 2019 or 2018, not very long ago. So um, and the next time NASA flies to the moon, which is, I don't know, a year and a half from now or so with people. Uh, what's what's great for me is, is that not only are there three Americans on board that ship, but there'll be a Canadian. So the very first human being 
to leave Earth orbit, to be on just the orbit of the world, who isn't an American, is going to be a Canadian. So that, that's that's a big, at least patriotically for me, that's a big development. Only, only right and proper, Chris. <laughs> one of those humans, uh, Dr. Sarah Webb, her astrophysicist at Swinburne, one of those humans will be female, that's uh, right. Apparently, as well, you'd love it to be you. It's not going to be. But. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not brave enough for space. I could never do what, what Chris has done. But that's right. We're going to see our first female astronaut uh, leave the low Earth orbit system, which I think is a fascinating thing because we don't fully understand how uh, a female body is going to uh, react once we once we leave the protection of the Earth's magnetic fields and the Van Allen radiation belts. And that's something that Artemis One was actively mm. trying to investigate was the radiation levels and what will that actually do to female anatomy uh, and what does that mean for human exploration to the moon and beyond? Mm. Because plenty of females have been to the International Space Station, but as you say, but but that's as far as they've got, isn't it? No further. That's right. Yeah. Why is it important, do you think, that humans go to the moon anyway, Sarah? I think for a multitude of reasons. There's always that one of just we can, so we should, that kind of you want to dream big and humans have done so many incredible things and it's just our next logical step is to try and get ourselves away from the planet and become kind of this full solar system species but I think beyond that kind of whimsical approach of wish we could so we should it there's so much we can learn from the moon and the missions that are being planned especially to the south pole are going to help us unlock many secrets about not only the moon's formation but our solar system formation with some of the minerals and water that is locked in that south pole and some of the jobs that we need done to be able to get the uh the samples for rigorous scientific evaluation will need to be done by humans Mm. and likely can't be done by machines at this point Mm. chris hadfield tell me why why humans are important? Why is it important that we land humans on the moon? What can, what can they really do that robots can't? Well, why do humans go anywhere? Uh, why don't we just send robots to Perth? Yeah. Why don't we just send robots to uh, Antarctica? It's people are what matter, not robots. And the only reason we send robots is to give us information to decide whether we want to go as people or not. I mean, it's a bit of a specious question, really. Now, if it's impossible, then nobody goes. If it's barely possible, you know, like inside a nuclear reactor, then maybe we'll put a robot because it's too dangerous for people. But the real intrigue, the interest, the 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 the, the main story of, of everything is people. You know, the robots aren't doing this on their own. So it's always going to be both. And as the technology gets better and simple, then it'll become more predominantly people. No, uh, and, yeah, I'm not. Just I'm not really. Yeah, I'm not really asking this as a suspicious question. I'm thinking, what what is the purpose of this? Though is is the idea that if we get humans to to and from the moon successfully this time, then we would think of establishing some sort of human presence on the moon? Is that is that is that the idea? Well, sure. Just you can use it's an imperfect comparison, but it's reasonable. Uh, you can use Antarctica the same. Mm. In the 1800s, some of the whalers and early sailors could just barely get there, but the technology was terrible, and people died all the time. And the first person to the South Pole in 1911, people were still dying on a regular basis. But when we switched from sails to steam, and then when we built airplanes, suddenly getting to Antarctica became much more credible. And people weren't always dying just to get there and come back. And then we started settling Antarctica. And now thousands of people live in Antarctica and and most of the major nations of the world. And we have people who live at the South Pole, all right through the the cold of winter, Mm. um, because it's uh, another place 
uh, for people to live and try and understand. It's scientifically really interesting. And we, we settled Antarctica quite differently than we settled any other continent on Earth. Different laws, different uh, cultural norms. And, and the moon is just, you know, an extension of that. We all lived in Africa 80,000 years ago. Hmm. And, and our technology improved. We have slowly moved and settled in every place our technology could take us. And the moon is the natural next extension of that. But I think if you look at the reasons why we went to Antarctica and why we're there on a daily basis, that's a reasonable parallel for the early settlements on the moon. Mm. Brad, do you think that's realistic, that we'll get to the sort of international level of cooperation that we seem to have in Antarctica broadly, at least, anyway? I mean, I think so. You know, we, we, we see that level of cooperation already on the International Space Station um, to, to the most part. Um, I, you know, the, the Artemis program, we talk so much about it as being U.S.-led, which it obviously is. But, you know, the Artemis Accords, which establishing this cooperation of activity on the moon, I think has now been signed by 39 countries. There's mm-hmm. just a few that just signed recently. And, you know, different countries are doing their bits. We've talked quite a bit in Australia recently about how we're designing a rover for probably Artemis Four to look at and measure some of that oxygen that will be used by some of those astronauts there. Um, you know, as, as Chris pointed out, we already have a Canadian going around the moon. Um, you know, it'd be nice to think of even an Australian down the road. So I think we will see this level of cooperation because it still has this, I, I think the beauty of that desire to explore space, as we heard from, from Sarah and Chris, kind of unites that element of humanity in us. And that it kind of allows us to see the world in a different reflection. You know, you played the the clip of Chris being awesome in space. Mm. And we like it because it's Chris being awesome in space, not a, a robot. And it's not because he's Canadian or not because he's, you know, whatever. It's because it's that element of humanity. And I still think at the end of the day, that's what drives us as scientists and engineers and people who want to do these things, not just from a nationalistic pursuit Hmm. and everyone does i think want to do the right thing that's the great thing is there is goodwill there is a desire to cooperate and work collectively in space that still drives us as part of this goal one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number colonel chris hadfield is with us a retired astronaut uh first canadian commander of the international space station and uh, Brad Tucker, who you just heard speaking, also with us, astrophysicist Dane Yu and Dr. Sarah Webb from Swinburne. We're talking about the renewed interest in the moon, which is culminating in many missions this year. And there'll be humans back on the moon. Well, at least the Americans say there'll be humans back on the moon next year or the year after, probably the year after, I suspect. And the Chinese certainly suggesting they'll have humans walking, walking, walking on the moon before the end of the decade. Uh, questions? If you'd like to ask a question, give us a call. one three hundred eight hundred triple two. David from Perth. G'day, Dave. Oh, hello. Good evening. Good evening. Um, thanks for having me. Pleasure. Um, the International Space Station, they're, they're going to de-orbit uh, yep. into the Pacific at um, the end of this decade, possibly the beginning of next decade. And uh, they're also talking about building a lunar gateway. So, um, how about, have they thought about moving the ISS using ion engines or solar sails or something on a long duration flight to orbit the moon? 
<laughs> okay, Chris, is that a, is that a, even a practical idea or what? I don't know whether you heard the question correctly, but uh, oh yeah, I heard the question clearly. Yeah, and yeah. and uh, good evening to Perth. Mm-hmm. Um, well, the space station, the first piece was launched in 1998, and I'm not sure which car you're driving in Perth right now, but you're probably not driving a 98 model, um, just because machinery gets old mm. and, and starts to wear out and and all machinery eventually breaks all of it so uh what is the design life of the machine and at what point does the cost of maintenance and the complexity of maintenance overwhelm the uh the utility of the vehicle itself and the space station was designed for uh 30 years or so as mean time between failure of the major components so um so if the first piece was launched in 98, you know, that, then 30 years takes you to 2028. Now, it'll stay up significantly longer than that, as, as you said. Um, but uh, if we, uh, you know, it, it's sort of like saying, OK, the family car was built in 1983. And yeah. gosh, it's really starting to cost us in maintenance now. But we're just going to keep it in the driveway. In fact, we're going to put it in the garage and um and you know run it on a regular basis eventually you're going to just go well it's just no longer practically feasible and and then that's not also just to ignore that the space station is designed for earth orbit when you look at uh how the attitude control system works uh how its sensors work how its communication systems work the resupply that is needed uh, to bring up you know Mm. all of the things that keep it functioning it wasn't designed to orbit anything but the earth like the moon or mars or anything else so so yeah lots of people have looked at that idea it's fundamentally an interesting idea but i don't think it's going to happen just because of impracticalities interesting all right um sarah webb the idea of humans on the moon of course, they need to be. I mean, they're 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 an outpost, don't they? They need to be resupplied constantly. Is there ever an idea that humans could be self sufficient in uh, environments like that? I think there's certainly always ideas of the idea of can we sustain life for any long periods of yeah. time. For the Artemis program, it's certainly short duration missions. But part of some of the the uh, experiments and interrogations that are going to be happening on the South Pole is trying to figure out can we do in situ resource uh, utilization. So can we make things that we need, such as oxygen? Can we get usable water? Can we get uh, metals? things like that from the lunar regolith itself. And then from there, we start to be able to figure out, well, can we sustain ourselves without too many resupply missions? Uh, And then I think in a a nice sci-fi novel, you then have people living in a utopia on the moon. But is it practical currently? Likely not. But it is something that, uh, as Chris was saying, we're not going back to the moon just to do it this time. This time it's really for mission-orientated programs where Mm. a lot of it is trying to figure out, well, how do you sustain life in a very hostile and extreme space environment? Mm. Is there any long-term – I mean, everyone says the same thing – who are cynical about, not cynical, but they say, oh, in the end it's about resources and minerals. Um, But that seems a long way away at this point, doesn't it, Sarah? 
Well, I think everything is about our resource utilisation, even here on the earth. And we're in a crisis at the moment where we're needing to switch from fossil fuels into clean energy because Mm. we've realised that that's just not going to cut it for the next um, ever so long on the earth. And I think it's a similar thing where as humanity grows and as we learn, we need to figure out, well, what are we using and why are we using it and how can we make the best out of what we've got? And the idea is if we want to explore the solar system, say we want to go to Mars, maybe we want to send people to Mars and build up uh, habitats there or we want to explore the gas giants with more and more equipment, we might need a lunar outpost and we might be able to get some of the materials from lunar itself rather than here on Earth. one three hundred eight hundred triple two is my number. Sarah Webb's with us, astrophysicist at Swinburne University of Technology. Also Brad Tucker is with us and Colonel Chris Hadfield as well. Is there is the idea, do you think, Chris, that humans that if there was habitation established on the moon and that appears to be a goal doesn't it that there'd be long term as you pointed out similar to what's happening at this to what's there at the south pole that there'd be a continuous human presence on the moon is there what's the state of research into suggesting into 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 thinking of how humans can survive without the protection of earth's magnetic field and the atmosphere and everything else yeah, um, well, I'm, I'm in addition to uh, having commanded a spaceship, I'm also the uh, chair of the Open Lunar Foundation, which is looking at uh, a lot of those questions you just asked, Philip. Um, you know, what, how should we do it? Why should we do it? What should the societal norms, wh- whose laws apply mm-hmm. on the moon? And, and what already exists on the moon that makes it easy and what makes it hard? Um, if you're near the South Pole of the moon, the hilltops are always in the sunlight. It's not like Antarctica because the Earth is tipped so far for several months of the year. Antarctica is dark. And then for several months of the year, it has 24 hour sun. If you're right at the poles of the moon, it's perfectly upright relative to the sun. So you always have the sun available. So you have power. Hmm. And then... Um, as uh, Brad was saying, uh, frozen into the craters of the South Pole is water. Yeah, that's right. This, guess, this is common misconception, isn't it? There is water on the moon, isn't there? Yeah, by our best guess, it's uh, 100 billion gallons, 400 billion liters mm-hmm. of water. So an immense reserve of water. So if you have power mm-hmm. and you have water, that's, you know, to a large degree, that's easier than a lot of places in Antarctica. Then you just need a good habitat. And so can we build a good habitat? I mean, no one could live in Canada. Canada would kill you if, if, in the winter. If, Come on. If we didn't. Come on, Chris. If, north, to the, north to the Yukon. I mean, we've done it before. Yeah. But I mean, what we take our technology for granted. But, you know, being able to harness fire and food preservation and clothing making and um, uh, buildings and all, all the other infrastructure that allows people to live in Canada. Otherwise, it's uninhabitable to people. Um, but we take our t- technologies for granted. So the moon is is just another problem to solve. And we've been living on the space station, which is instantly fatal uh, if you go outside the ship without your spacesuit on. And yet we've been living there. Uh, productively for 23 years since the mm, year 2000 without true. an interruption. So, um, you know, it, it like anything new, it's kind of puzzling and you need to decide if you want to do it. But this is the moment in history when it's happening and we're going to transition from impossible to robots, to explorers, to uh, robot settlers, to human settlers. That That's what's going on. And, uh, and it's you know it's it, we've followed that pattern on the surface of the Earth many times, 
Um, it's just while it's happening real time, uh, it's just a little bit incomprehensible or, or puzzling for most people. Welcome to our listeners in South Australia and the Northern Territory. We're, we're talking about the moon and everyone's going to the moon, it seems. Our guests include, uh, um, very fortunately for us, Colonel Chris Hadfield, who's first Canadian commander of the International Space Station. We've also got Brad Tucker with us from the ANU. He's an astrophysicist and another astrophysicist from Swinburne too, Dr. Sarah Webb, if you've got questions about the moon or what we should be doing there. one three hundred eight hundred triple two is the number. Sean from Canberra is on the line. G'day, Sean. Yeah, g'day. Um, you know, the conversation's absolutely fabulous and um, very enjoyable. I just wanted to know if we move into mining and harvesting minerals and resources from the moon and the asteroid, could we have any ability to throw off cosmic balance or anything like that or would what we do be so negligible that it doesn't really matter? Mm. Uh, Brad, do you want to take this one on? Yeah, I mean, I think the answer is yes and no, um, in the sense that when we talk about really extracting most of these things, you know, even the, you know, the numbers Chris was just quoting with the water, I mean, that is not even a percent of a percent of, of the total mass of the moon. And in fact, we already have other gravitational effects that change our rotation with the moon actually naturally drifting away about four centimeters per year, um, which affects our tides, which subsequently actually affects our spin. So we already have these other processes that actually affect and change the way our our, our Earth and planet work naturally, Mm. that I think at the scale that even in the wildest dreams, the next century, I would say, of extracting these things wouldn't you know, change it on any other large scale. Now, that said, I think we sometimes have fallen in the trap in space of, you know, she'd be right, you know, it'll be, it'll be fine, we don't have to worry about it. Um, but we are starting to see in some cases this isn't the case and that, you know, a little bit of forward thinking and planning to make sure that we stay in that realm of always okay is important. I, you know, I, I think space junk is that classic example where, you know, we went from a few satellites to, you know, a couple dozen to a couple hundred to now thousands per year with millions more of tiny bits of debris orbiting the Earth. That was never going to be a problem. It now is. So I think there's a, at least a cognizant. And again, I think this is cognizant in the community that when we do these things, let's at least make sure of some of those what ifs so that it will be fine. But let's verify that it will be fine. Mm. Okay, Brad Tucker is with us, uh, Colonel Chris Hadfield too, and uh, Dr. Sarah Webb as well. Are there things on the moon, Chris, that we don't have on Earth? I'm getting quite a few texts about helium, for example, a thing in relatively short supply on Earth. But are there things on the moon that we don't have on Earth? Um, Yeah, well, one of the things that we need for a lot of our technological advancements, uh, you know, if you look at the various types of elements that exist, like oxygen and nitrogen and whatever, Mm -hmm. helium, as you mentioned, um, there's a there's a a few of them together that are potassium and phosphorus and rare earth elements. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because when you put those together, it spells K-R-E-E-P, so creep. Um, And the creep elements, um, especially the rare earth elements, uh, which are used in in so many different applications as we become a more digital world, uh, the way that the moon cooled and the way the 
the the rocks sort of mixed and settled and floated to the top as the moon cooled down four billion years ago. Um, it is rich in rare earth elements. Uh, and so that may be one of the mineral resources on the moon that is worth mining, uh, so long as we can get the cost of transportation down cheap enough. And then you also mentioned helium. Um, the moon has been bombarded by the radiation from our sun mm-hmm. for over four billion years. And that um, that changes the, the elements in the surface a little bit and creates some some versions of, uh, of certain elements. And if you helium, um, if if you add energy to it, can become a thing called helium three, mm. which if someday we get uh, fusion working instead of nuclear fission, but nuclear fusion, which is like a, um, I don't know, a pollution free version of nuclear. Well, power. it's the great goal, um, isn't it? It's the endless source of endless source of, of power forever. Yeah, mm. it is. And if you look at the various types of fuel that you can put in a nuclear fusion um, engine, uh, one of the best is helium three, but it's not readily available on Earth. Uh, it looks like it's probably very readily available on the moon. And so if you can get again, you know, that, those are a couple big future things. But if, if you don't plan for the future, then you're going to be disappointed. And uh, and so uh, that's another potential major uh, element or mineral resource on the moon that might be worth mining and that the whole there was a whole movie made about that i think they called it moon where robots were mining the moon for helium three um (laughs) so yeah that might be what drives it Mm. colonel chris hadfield's with us now chris i know you've got to go and i really do appreciate your time um it's been fantastic talking with you as well and uh and all the best thanks very much for joining us and uh being part of the program tonight my pleasure. I, I wish you all a very good evening from early in the morning here in, in Toronto. It turns out the world is round. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Sarah, just just back on that, who is, I mean, we've got SpaceX, of course, which is now a major player. They're a private yeah. company, a major player in in space launches at least. Mm. Uh, in the Who owns the moon anyway? There's no agreement about that, is there? It's a very complicated question. Technically, nobody can own the moon currently. We have different treaties. So we have our original uh, outer space treaty from uh, back about 50 years ago. So now we have the Artemis Accords, which is kind of this updated version of what what behaviors are acceptable in outer space. And and basically, it's similar to, to what we see with um, Antarctica. We're hoping that people will get to the moon and will work collaboratively. Of course, Antarctica does have spaces that are designated to different countries. Uh, but the in, moon, theor- in theory. In theory, yes. exactly, yes. in theory. But the moon has yet to uh, have that happen, and I think it's going to be a very interesting time. But I do think people will, on the most part, work collaboratively. It's too much of a hostile and extreme environment to have anyone be playing silly games. And so I'm hoping that... Um, Humanity will prevail and the idea of we get things done better when we work together uh, will, will come through in the next few decades when mm. that becomes an issue. Mm. Yeah, what do, you, what do you think about this, Brad? The, as I say, I mean, there's a lot of private investment in space and it's, it's, it's quite likely, isn't it, that there'll be some private-public partnership in the end that will be running space bases if they, if they ever get to that point. Yeah, I mean, very much so. And, you know, I think part of the problems of I, – I like the phrase the, the treaties and laws are both clear and clear in their own clarity um, because there are very specific 
kind of ways where you don't know what this means, you know, and the classic example we've been talking about is extracting resources. No one knows the answer to, well, you can't claim ownership of the moon, as we just heard. You can't claim, you know, flag planting, but you can't necessarily determine if you extract those resources, do you get to say you own those resources mm. and how that comes into play? And and the Artemis Court, something I talked about a little bit earlier, this kind of U.S.-led law of working on the moon specifically says this covers essentially the national efforts but isn't representative of the private companies. And that then creates these kind of other issues at play. Look, I do – I'm an optimistic by heart. I do think people want to do the right thing. I think sometimes that we just don't know what the right thing is. You know, you may be driving down the road at 50 and you're going – you think it's 50, you're driving 50, and then you realize, oh, wait, I'm in a 40 zone. Now, ignorance of the law is not an excuse for all those police listening. I agree. However, we don't even have in a lot of cases that law defined, so we don't even know what those right things are. We're just trying to be right. So there's a lot of great people trying to do this, especially in Australia, of laying these frameworks and also leading by example. I think that's the key is leading by example Mm. and being a good space player. In fact, Australia does a lot of this time and time again of being ahead of the curve of saying these are the sorts of things we should do in space. We're going to do them, even though it's kind of not the international requirement. Mm. Somebody's asking Sarah whether it's whether we know whether humans could be conceived in space. Well, oh. yeah, the answer is we don't know. I suppose do we? We don't know, and I think for the time being, is we don't want to find out. No. Uh, there's lots of theories about different mutations and things that can happen. Obviously, you're exposed to slightly higher levels of radiation in space, uh, more so once you leave our Van Allen radiation belts. Mm. Uh, But also, we don't know what microgravity will do to fetal development. And um, on that note, there was an interesting study that there's the idea of potentially humans could live on Mars and reproduce on Mars. And um, one study has come out suggesting that children who grow up on a low uh, on the Martian environment with low gravity, uh, different environment to what humans have evolved to, will end up with like a ricket-like condition naturally from that environment and likely wouldn't fare very well if they ever came back to Earth. Mm. And so that, I think, is not only scientifically interesting because we are we are evolutionarily made for Earth. See, this, this, is, is, the, this is the point, isn't it? Is this, is, is this, is this yeah. actually our home and that in evolutionary exactly. terms we really wouldn't succeed anywhere else. In the same way that you couldn't suddenly plant penguins in the North Pole and expect them to prosper because they wouldn't. Yeah. And then there's the ethics question of, well, our home might not be our home forever. Now, this is, of course, thinking very long term. Our sun will die eventually in four to five billion years. The earth will no longer be here. If humans are to aim to be that species that continues to live, hopefully, for a very long time, that means we do have to get off earth eventually. And again, we go into the sci-fi realm of, well, how do you do that? And and is it even possible? Hmm. I love your thinking, Sarah. (laughs) (laughs) Huge sci-fi fan. (laughs) Because most of us are only thinking to 2050 and whether we can get to to climate neutral energy use in the the world. 1-300-800-222 is the number. Dr. Sarah Webb's with us, astrophysicist at Swinburne and Brad Tucker, uh, astrophysicist at ANU. A couple of people saying, I can't believe you're having this conversation with all the world's problems. But... We can we can think of two things at once, and in essence, 
Well, how would you put it, Brad? Or maybe I see her way in as well, but just to Brad first maybe on this. What do you say about the ethics of doing this in the first place anyway, given the world's problems? Yeah, I mean, you know, we kind of said the classic example of, you know, chew gum and walk at the same time, that you can do multiple things. Um, I also think, you know, A, I think, not speaking for Sarah, but, you know, I think we both know each other pretty well. enough. <laughs> we both care about things like climate change and a lot of these worldly issues. This is not to say, you know, we're not people on this planet aware and wanting to solve it. In fact, I think part of this investment in space and thinking about space is how can we use other ways of actually applying and solving some of these problems? Um, you know, we always quote technology spinoffs and there, there's a myriad of them in, in space. But at the end of the day, what we're doing is we're living in a world now where our, our world is very dependent on space technology and now finding ways of solving problems from, you know, water resourcing and management to bushfire um, and, you know, bushfire growth, essentially, hmm. um, activity and building these missions all because of space, all because those costs have become cheaper because people are thinking about larger goals in the moon. So it directly feeds into this. And I also think at the end of the day, one thing that we sometimes miss in this discourse is that, yes, there's lots of problems we have to solve. This is regardless of any time. There will always be problems in the world that need to be solved, big and small. If we, if we lose our element of humanity of thinking, questioning, wondering, and looking, that's what makes us human. If we stop doing that, we sometimes stop being human and then – I raise the point, what is the point, right? You know, if, if we're not going to embrace our humanity and appreciate it and use it to the best of our lucky ability of living on this planet at this time with these great brains that can think and process all this information, then we're kind of wasting that resource as well in my mind. Mm. What do you think, Sarah? Oh, I couldn't agree more. I think Brad's hit it on the nail that we both care very deeply about not only space, but our earth and our humanity. And I think it is so true. So there's something called blue sky research, where you're researching for the sake of research and you're, mm. you're asking interesting questions for the sake of it, trying to understand the world and the universe we live in. And our entire existence in the 21st century has come of spin-offs of people who were curious once, who wanted to investigate something. And I think it's a similar thing when we look at space exploration. And as Chris mentioned, there's something called helium-3 on the moon, a large deposit of it that's locked away. If we can master the power of fusion energy, so this very, very clean energy production, that helium-3 will be absolutely vital to, to keep humanity going because we are very limited in what we have on, on Earth. Here, so I think it's it's all of those ties uh, coming back together with the well, you can do many things at once, and I liked what Brad said: you can chew gum and walk. You absolutely can. Mm. Australians are involved in this in some ways, aren't they, Sarah? We, we, we've sent payloads up to the space station, for example. We sure have. We have. Tell me about some of those. Yeah. I'd love to tell you about some of the ones that um, we've sent from Swinburne. So I'm uh, the mission director of one of our programs at Swinburne where we send student-led experiments to the space station, which means high school students and university students get to help us design what we send, which means uh, we've sent interesting things. One payload included human teeth up to space. Why? Uh, Because we don't know what saliva does in microgravity. So... Everybody who's listening, you're going to become very, very 
cognizant of your mouth right now. Yeah. Your saliva coats your teeth nice and evenly, pretty much it falls down. In space, it balls up uh, as liquids do. And without saliva, you can't neutralize the acids and you're more likely to get cavities. And our students were interested, how does a saliva simulant move around in microgravity? So that's why we sent that one up. You're saying that dentistry is going to become a big, hot new occupation in space? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> How do, you, how do you actually get something from Swinburne uh-huh. to Cape Canaveral? There's a long process. So for some of the experiments, we've built them in-house at Swinburne, shipped them across the Pacific, uh, and then had them loaded up on a rocket. Some of them, we design the experiments here and then get the final uh, actual experimental uh, payload put together in the United States and then and then put on the rocket. So it all depends what we're sending. We've sent yogurt to space a couple years ago. Why? About- Why? Oh, yogurt was an interesting one. Hmm. So there was the twin study by NASA, which found uh, they sent two tw- uh, one twin up to space, one twin stayed on the ground. Hmm. Uh, the famous Scott Kelly was the twin that went up to space, and they would uh, they did this experiment for a year. And what they found when they brought Scott down was that his gut bacteria had pretty rapidly depleted compared to his twin brother who was doing the exact same regime. The only difference was Scott was in space. And so our gut bacteria is linked to a myriad of things. Every year we're learning more and more about how our gut health affects everything from cardiovascular, mental health, even potentially Alzheimer's. And so one way to keep your gut healthy is to continually introduce good bacteria. The ads on TV, they they don't lie to us. We do need our good bacteria in our gut. And one way to get that is with yogurt. Can you cultivate yogurt in space? You can. We because made it there's f- no wild bacteria. Yeah. We made it from scratch using freeze-dried probiotics, so uh, lactic acid-producing bacteria, and then we fed them a little bit of milk and we were able to make some nice, uh, quite thick and creamy yogurt. In space? In space. (laughs) It's weird, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) It does blow your mind, to use an ancient expression. 1-300-800-222 is the number. Graham's in Perth. G'day, Graham. Uh, greetings, <clears throat> excuse me. Greetings, Philip and Brad and Sarah. Hi. Hi. You want to be an astronaut? No, I'm 70 years of age. I remember the first moon shot uh, with Neil Armstrong to the yeah. moon, and I was in awe at 15 years of age. But the, my question is this Are there any specialist psychological profiles required in this 21st century to go to the moon and beyond? Yeah, well, I guess you you can't be scared, can you, Sarah? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really interesting question. So part of astronaut training is, is definitely psychological evaluation and figuring out how do you work as a person. And part of that is because when we're building teams, so we're building astronaut teams, especially when you're going to put them on a space uh, shuttle and send them away to the moon or to Mars for many, many months, you need teams that are diverse in their thinking and attitudes and also the way that they might react to things. So psychological and cognitive profiling is something that's very uh, important and understanding how people work. So how do you deal with workload. Some people thrive under pressure, some people do not, and that's okay. It's just who we are and what makes us human, but some of those qualities are uh, more important than others in life and death situations. Mm. Yes. Brad, uh, we saw in the in movies like Blade Runner <laughs> uh, visions of what, off, what living off-world would be like. 
almost all of the ones that have been fairly dystopian, haven't they? Can yeah, you- and, and I, it, they are, right? And I think, you know, we, we use science fiction as a, as a reflection of our own, you know, human worries and social hmm. tellings and are also hopes for the future. And, you know, and as kind of, as I was touching on, we sometimes think about this longer term about what are the, the benefits of going into space and what can we use and look at it. And I think there's still, in some of these cases, again, like Blade Runner and a few others, there's this perception that the space is is the Wild West and, yeah. and unruly and things like that. There are rules, there are regulations, but also at the same time, we, we sometimes miss this concept that space, you know, space is hard, um, space is difficult, and space is costly. One of the reasons why, mm. you know, it's virtually impossible to move the space station to the moon. And so at the end of the day, at these logistical levels, you're really just trying to survive and thrive. And, you know, the, the, the more unruly outlaw world may not come to play almost for practicality's sake. And, and I think the great example I always use is, you know, we obviously know of the, the conflict in Ukraine and the tensions between the U.S. and Russia. Yet right now you have four Americans and two Russians, at least three Russians, working together in space happily on projects, cooperating, sharing information. And so you still have this benefit of this, you know, existential view that sometimes gets away from our worldly crisis and narrowing borders. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. Um, look, thanks to both of you. And uh, Chris, well, we said goodbye to Chris earlier. He had to go, which is, um, which is. Well, I'm glad he had time for us too. But same with you, with you two guys too. Um, thanks very much for your time and uh, and for your your expertise. Dr. Sarah Webb is an astrophysicist at the Swinburne Institute of Technology, and Brad Tucker, of course, uh, well known to many ABC audiences as uh, as an astrophysicist and cosmologist at the ANU's Research School of Astronomy. Look up and wonder. There is a lot to wonder at. Brad and Sarah, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Great to have you with us as well. You've been listening to a Nightlife podcast. For more great conversations about the issues that impact you, as well as features on travel and food, head to the Nightlife webpage. You'll find it at abc.net.au slash nightlife. You don't need to be a night owl to enjoy the nightlife. 